Hey, this is Nick Gibson. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, resources designed to engage and equip people of substance for the local church. I'm here with Jill Reese. Hi. Who is our communications coordinator, coordinator at High Point. <laughs> um, and she's been doing a bunch of reading and she's had a lot of personal experience um, researching uh, shame and insecurity. We're going to come back uh, a few weeks from now, hopefully do a podcast on shame and some research on it and then try to contort that around to fitting within a biblical perspective. Um, but today we're going to talk about insecurity. <clears throat> the reason I invited Jill to come here, even though she is young, um, she's actually done, spent a lot of time thinking about insecurity. And every time I go into her office, there is a artistically written <laughs> new verse, oftentimes meant to focus on one of the biblical truths that should subvert um, insecurity controlling us and hurting us. Um, so for the purpose of this podcast, let me clarify what we're talking about by insecurity. By insecurity, we do we are not today talking about what I would call tactical insecurity, which is like real life insecurity, which it's not in, it's something in your head. It's like things are changing at work and you really could get fired and you need to realize that you're not secure in your job and that there might be some things that you want to do to increase your usefulness or things that you might need to do out of your resourcefulness to secure your position better. Or you may not have been paying attention to your marriage for a decade, and you may rightfully recognize that there's insecurity in the relationship you have with your spouse, and you need to do something about that. That is the good kind of sensed insecurity. It's technical insecurity. What we're talking about today is what you might just call emotional insecurity, which is a objectively irrational, sometimes somewhat rational, but usually partly irrational, mm -hmm. fear mm -hmm. um, that you're not good enough, that things aren't going to turn out, that doom is just around the corner, and it is a problem that we have where we see the world through a lens that is distorted, and it ruins a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Our enjoyment, it increases our anxieties, all these kinds of things. It also can ruin our relationships. It can cause us, it can tempt us to do things that are awful, try to fix things that we have no business doing. And so um, that's kind of what we're focused on, what we might call emotional insecurity. So, um, Jill, um, just tell us a little bit about like your experience with this and yeah. a little bit of your story, I think is maybe helpful. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, like Nick said, I am young. I'm only 27. I'm not 16, like most of you might think, but I'm 27. Uh, but that's still young. And, uh, but there are parts of my story that were difficult growing up. And that caused me to believe lies about uh, myself or situations or reality. And that I really carried with me into uh, as I became an adult. And that I felt like there were it was really a knot of insecurity, I would say, by the time I was in college. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just explain some of those situations. Mm -hmm. And then what insecurities or what, that can, what I took away from those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, just to frame what I'm saying. So, um, first of all, when I was two, or, when I was three, I had leukemia, which is a cancer of, of the blood cells. I believe I should know that. Um, anyway, you don't remember the explanations when you were three? No, <laughs> I, mean, I had a little picture book with like I remember little blood cells and stuff in, in a picture book. So mm -hmm. I should look into that more. But anyway, it's it's a type of cancer. And I did actually have, um, so that you're not concerned, I'm fine now. And uh, I had a very curable type 
uh, for my age and the type of leukemia I had. But anyway, uh, what I took away from that time, uh, as a three-year-old, you can imagine a toddler not really be able, being able to understand these uh, kind of abstract concepts of life and death and these serious illnesses. And I did, I was able to take away from that situation that there was something deeply wrong with me in the situation that something was bad Mm -hmm. and uh, also that there was fear surrounding just me being alive and I didn't really understand death but I remember comprehending that I could end and being really afraid of that and so I mean kind of what Nick was saying there was some tactical insecurity with that because (laughs) (laughs) like no one told, like, it wasn't that someone told me something harmful or, like, I just got cancer. I had cancer, and that just happened to me. And But it had lingering effects it had lingering that are not effects. entirely rational. Yes. Like fear of death, fear of sickness. Yes. That aren't, that aren't, aren't connected to, like, mm-hmm. legitimate recurrence right. or anything like that. Right. And some of those things, for example, were, uh, since I was a little girl, I had, t- till I was probably, till a couple of years ago, actually, so until I was maybe 23 or 24, I really struggled with falling asleep and going to, I just dreaded nighttime and um, I, this, it can creep up still too um, sometimes, but it was very crippling uh, in the sense that as a young girl, I mean, through middle school or high school, I remember being really afraid of the dark and just, and feeling a lot of insecurity about that because I, I remember one time I was, I think I was 12 and I just could not fall asleep, and I would get all these, I would just be so rigid and stiff and, like, tense in trying to fall asleep, um, and I went into, I think, my parents, one of my parents' rooms, and I said, um, I said I was really afraid and couldn't fall asleep, and was just, like, I would get, I think there were panic attacks, like, my heart would just, like, rapidly beat, and, uh, I didn't really know why. I wasn't associating it with having cancer, and, stuff and so I just explained I was really afraid and they were kind of like you're 12 years old like grow up and get over it so I don't think really my family even understood I felt really embarrassed about it going to friends houses and having sleepovers I felt really insecure about it and what I ended up finding out uh, later through counseling in my 20s a couple years ago was that I was associating um, falling asleep from a young age with um, being unconscious and ending like I explained that one of the insecure, or one of the fear, one one thing I picked up through having cancer was that I could end or die. And so Mm -hmm. that just really stuck with me in kind of weird ways that I didn't even put together until later. Um, So that was, and another thing out of that situation was feeling that something was wrong with me physically. Um, This kind of came out too in just hatred of like my body. I, I didn't trust I always felt like I was sick or that if I got sick, I felt like I was dying and in irrational ways, like I could have the flu and just feel like I was dying and um, also feeling like just there was something different about me. Um, I, I mean, I knew that other kids didn't have something like that and so I kind of took away from that that there was something wrong with how I was mm-hmm. made. Um, that I was and you were kind of a late bloomer. To boot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I remember you telling me stories about 
um, somebody in your family like telling you you look like a boy yes. and that being like r- horrifically yeah. hurtful mm-hmm. and like why and don't you look in, more like, like her school. yeah mm-hmm. like another feminine mm-hmm. looking girl and it was just kind of like I'm supposed to look like a girl by now yeah. and when a, a female authority in your life is like you don't look enough like a girl yeah that can be like really terrible especially yeah in the well it's terrible anytime but especially as you're becoming a woman and feeling like there's okay there's something wrong with me it also didn't help that I have really terrible eyesight and used to wear huge glass like very thick glasses mm-hmm. and couldn't see very well and um so I just really that sounds like quite the mix Jeff. I know I was <laughs> I was a real charmer so and okay so also there's this chapter of your family didn't manage to right. stay together yes so, Which um, usually can be really big for kids mm-hmm. and insecurity, especially in later relationships mm-hmm. and who's going to stick around and who isn't. Mm-hmm. Is this relationship going to last? And mm-hmm. Yeah, so how I, what happened and how I, what I took away from that, uh, when I was 10, uh, my parents separated for the first time. And I think and there were a couple of elements to that. I mean, that's, no one wants that. And that's not good in any situation. But uh, what what made it uh what communicated certain lies to myself was that um there was a very surprising it was very surprising we had never seen them fight we everything seemed fine we like grew up in an evangelical christian family i went to awana my dad was like a youth leader and went on missions trips and so it was kind of like i don't know actually because i was a kid what my parents' faith was actually like. Uh, but what from what I saw, we were just church people and we were like this normal, stable family. Uh-huh. And uh, until this one day when <laughs> everything changed, it was very confusing. Was there a lot of fighting and stuff? No. Or clear coldness between your parents? No. I remember, I think it was maybe a week before. I'm the oldest uh-huh. and I was 10. So I part of it was I picked up, I started picking up on things and I think it was only like a week before. It didn't seem like very long before. I don't remember what time yeah, it was. So but quick point mm-hmm. on this for people listening. Um, there is there are actually significant liabilities to not showing kids conflict. Um, if, for example, if a relationship mm-hmm. breaks up and it just feels like it's out of the blue, it can be more detrimental to their future ability to trust because there were no signs. Mm-hmm. Like if parents are screaming at each other and get like mm-hmm. get not getting along and then, yeah. then they break up. Kids are kind of like, oh, yeah, they kind of hated each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to that, it's also showing conflict and showing conflict resolution is something that kids need as well. Mm-hmm. So having arguments in front of your kids um, is should be what happens. Yeah, it, it really shouldn't be that you like hide it all from them. Um, but they should see you. They should see the conflict. They should also see how you're resolving it. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise, it, it's very confusing for kids. I know kids that have, this has happened to no conflict and then all of a sudden a breakup i also know i also know a guy i worked with in ministry actually who's who um whose his parents never fought in front of him and he got married he had absolutely no idea how to handle conflict yeah. <laughs> and it was horrible yeah for it's him. terrible i can so kids actually yeah. ar- seeing parents argue mm-hmm. especially if they argue well they don't intentionally hurt each other and then and they they move constructively towards a solution mm-hmm. even if they're very adamant and very upset even if they raise their voices it's actually not nearly as detrimental mm-hmm. as people would think it is. It's more sometimes it's more detrimental to fake like everything's fine when it isn't. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but go ahead. So you went yeah. through this process, and so going to a church when a family splits up, it's it's even more embarrassing. Churches help yeah. help with social pressure, keep families together, mm-hmm. 
But once they split, especially if it's for ignoble reasons, mm-hmm. which it sort of always is, mm-hmm. it's really embarrassing, especially yeah. if all your friends are church kids. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I experienced a lot of that, uh, a lot of the elements that you explained. Um, and, yeah, like I said, I picked up on some of the things, too, which... Uh, and there wasn't really any communication about what was going on. Um, my dad uh, and they, they sep- my parents separated for a little while and they got back together a few times and then ended up divorcing and my dad got remarried shortly after that. And that was all within a span of three years, I think. And you were how old? I was, so I was 10, the first separation. Mm-hmm. And then I was 12 or 13 when... They got divorced, and then it was six months, I think, later that my dad got remarried. So, yeah, during that span of time, it was because it was so sudden, uh, my parents were kind of doing, I don't want to say doing their own thing. I, I don't really, <laughs> there's a lot of different sides of the story, and yeah. we were all just. Parents often pain. have a really hard time. <laughs> yeah. Because divorce is so emotionally right. destructive for yes. the adults. That it's very difficult right. to really... Um, second excursus, don't believe the modern research that divorce is fine for kids if you manage it right. It is absurd poppycock. Yeah. And it is not going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Divorce never has good effects on children. And um, usually a quite bad marriage that can be quite volatile um, is better for kids in the long run than, than divorce. Yeah. So this, the older sibling in me responded by uh, kind of becoming like a co-parent. Um, I, a lot of things I took away was that it was, I need to be okay. I need, if I'm not okay, no one else is going to be okay for me and support me in not being okay. Because uh, mm-hmm. that, I mean, my mom, I watched, I mean, a lot of times in my mom's house, for example, she was just distraught and in her room grieving and we were just kind of out in, I don't know, the, about the house doing mm-hmm. our own thing. And so. Uh, and generally speaking, what you want is you want an adult to put on a happy face because they're supposed to know who they are. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to say, okay, I'm dealing with this right now, but I need to be this person right now. Mm-hmm. And an adult is, is, is hopefully supposed to be able to manage that. And a junior high kid isn't. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean. They don't know who they are. Right. <laughs> and so they really shouldn't be faking that they're somebody mm-hmm. else mm-hmm. or putting on something to try to make it all work. Mm-hmm. It can be really confusing if you're trying to figure out who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was that element. Uh, there is also uh, the element, along with that, of like our mess. My mess should not be seen by other people. Uh, I can't be messy in front of other people. For example, because this kind of ties into the church thing a little bit for me. We used to have Bible studies at our house. We would have... Um, youth ministry stuff at our house. I just remember having church things at our house a lot and community and friends over. And after that, uh, we didn't really have that anymore. Uh, I felt embarrassed to invite friends over because my siblings and I were usually fighting extremely because we were just trying to figure out. uh, We felt a lot of things that we didn't know how to process and um, it was very embarrassing. One time I remember actually a church lady um, like rung our doorbell while we were in the middle of this like massive fight. It was like so bad. <laughs> and I know families fight, but like there was like 
a screwdriver, like a, like a drill involved, like pointing at another person. Like we could have probably, and it was just my siblings and I, we probably could have killed someone. But then this church lady walks into the situation, no one answered the door and she just came in and it was like, it was like exposure and like a lot of embarrassment. And she kind of like counseled us through the, um, the evening. But I just remember feeling like we are like this weird anomaly and we can't handle life and like it's really embarrassing and messy um so home kind of was a place of embarrassment and insecurity for me and um finally like out of this kind of what you were saying Nick uh when it was because it was so sudden I I think I took away from the experience that I can't actually trust someone to love me or like they might say they love me like my parents tell me they love me and I know they do and uh because you saw them say they loved each other yeah and I saw them yeah right and And then that didn't seem to happen it didn't really seem to like happen in real life and Mm -hmm. so it's like okay I don't really know and again you're not I wasn't like consciously thinking so you learn that love doesn't control the rest of life right actually the rest of life controls controls love yeah and therefore love is at its mercy So who knows what will happen to love. Yeah. So those were some of the things that I took away. Uh, Again, it was a lot of like, you are alone in this. You have to be okay because no one else is going to do this for you and be okay for you. And And, and to give listeners a little bit of a context. So you grew up in like Maisomany. I grew up in Baraboo. In Baraboo, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Small town. Yes. Not a big town. Nope. So like... People know there's yeah, only one high know. school. One, yeah. Like you go, you're everybody's hanging out at Culver's on the mm-hmm. weekend, like kind of deal. Like this mm-hmm. is not like some big city. You can switch your friend group a little bit and be a goth for a little while and make it work, <laughs> right? Yeah, people, and especially in our church. I know, like I grew up in a great church that was similar to High Point in a lot of ways, but there is it was there was a definite element of pe- everyone knew, mm-hmm. and there was uh, there were sides taken and. Uh, it was hard as a kid because we would hear things mm-hmm. and about our parents and uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so we'll come back. We're going to come back another time to your testimony. <clears throat> we just want to give people a context yes. for this, right? So you've had the body issues, family divorce, cancer when you're a little girl. So the moral of the story, besides the moral of the story being that you could still marry a charming man, <laughs> right? Um, there are like very specific effects that you felt. Mm-hmm. came out of this mm-hmm. right but um but we're so we're gonna you're gonna generalize these though not just for you but like when people right. have this emotional insecurity mm-hmm. what are the the standard results that we see for me a lot of what I carried out of those situations a lot of my emotion was unexpressed and so in high school I developed an eating disorder uh when I was I think I was 14 I was I became anorexic and it wasn't like I don't remember thinking I want to be skinny or anything. It was like everything. I remember thinking to myself, like, I can't control these other situations. What can I control? Like, I can get good grades. Okay, I can try to get faster in track. I can, like, and so to me it was a, something I could control. And the reality is you cannot control that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ends up controlling you. So okay. that was one thing for me, uh, anxiety and depression were some results for me uh, that was along with the eating disorder and into college, which, yeah, uh, there was that. Uh, for me, also, just never really uh, 
really becoming friends with people in the sense of sharing what I was thinking or what I was going through. I never, I remember when my dad first left, and this is just when I was 10, I uh, didn't tell anyone (laughs) at all. I didn't tell any of my friends. They would come over and my friend was like, I remember her saying, where's your couch? Like, why is it gone? And I was like, oh, we just got rid of it. Like, (laughs) I just, I just felt like I couldn't share in that way for whatever reason. And I, I, that continued for, through college, I would say, in a lot of my relationships, I would, if I couldn't be the helper or the strong person, I hid and I wasn't open with people. Which everybody loved because they thought you were just a really low maintenance person. Right. Yeah. They're like, oh, Jill's a great friend. And I could be very friendly. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, it was actually very hurtful to a lot of my friends, I'm sure, because we would be very friendly and then something would happen and I would just distance myself. Something would happen personally and I would distance myself and they kind of were like, what happened? (laughs) It wasn't anything they did. So uh, it really does have an effect on relationships. Along with that, I was very controlling in my family relationships uh, with my siblings, especially as the oldest sibling. And even with my parents too, like especially my mom, kind of co-parenting and having a lot of opinions of like what should happen with my siblings. And it was kind of a weird, it's hard to explain <laughs> in a succinct way but uh, I was very controlling in my family and uh, that was very hurtful especially to my siblings so those are some of the things yeah. and then I also saw. you said self-centeredness self-centeredness oh, yes. and just absorption that like the insecure people see the world as full of enemies mm-hmm. and few allies mm-hmm. and so you really have to take care of yourself mm-hmm. right so we see usually control issues Oftentimes we'll see approval issues. Mm-hmm. People are just desperate to get the approval of others because it makes them feel secure. Control issues, mm-hmm. right? Or did I, did I say that already? No. So I, I talked about it a little bit. Power, yeah. control, um, approval, mm-hmm. and then just trying to find a place where they feel comfortable, which is really difficult to do. And that, that leads to all kinds of other things. So mm-hmm. um, on one level, this is like broadly human, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can We can observe insecurities of everybody anybody we know really well we probably know at least one of their insecurities mm-hmm. right um which i think leads to something you were going to talk about which is that there when you have these kinds of insecurities there are certain things that come along and trigger them yeah and like there sometimes they're key mm-hmm. things so like conflict mm-hmm. or not feeling like you have enough money in your bank account mm-hmm. or just lack aging, of control in general or, like something right. happens and you're not in control right Having it's great extreme... for you now that you're pregnant right <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be little th- along the trigger point. It can be little things that, you know, might not normally have this extreme response in another person, but you might feel really angry or defensive or distraught over uh, or you just think about it all the time. And it could be a little situation at work or, mm-hmm. yeah, just something that comes up that you can't control. And if control is a insecurity trigger thing for you which we can't control anything so that one comes up a lot uh yeah it can really spin small situations into this huge situation but don't you think control has the specific capacity of shrinking people's lives yeah so that they only allow things in or they only see themselves as relating to Mm -hmm. stuff they can control like how many shoes they have and like whether what they eat and as opposed to like broader issues like Covenantal friendships, mm-hmm. spouses and children. Mm-hmm. Like, man, 
I wish mm-hmm. I could control that stuff a lot mm-hmm. more than I, I can, but everybody has to cooperate with me. Yeah. And so it comes out of the realm of unilateral control mm-hmm. and to, into the realm of cooperation where I can do my part and I can ask another person to respond to me, but yeah, I can't make them. Yeah, and to that point... Which makes I... these people really, really direct bosses <laughs> and, and sometimes not super great friends. Right. Yeah, to that point, when I had when I was in the midst of my eating disorder, I didn't do social things because I didn't know what food... There's always food at a social um, event, and I didn't want to go because I didn't couldn't control that element of uh, the event, and I knew people would say, would ask about it, and uh-huh. so it really isolated me, <laughs> and it was, it ended up being a good thing, God used it to actually bring me to himself, but it was definitely minimizing. So if insecurity is a ubiquitous issue, that like, there's some insecurity in everybody, mm-hmm. it's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Is it like, um, is it like dust, that like, it's everywhere, you can't really get rid of it. <laughs> and it's not that big a deal, mm-hmm. right? Um, unless you have an allergy. Um, or is it the sort of thing that it's it's the dirty secret thing of all of humanity? That it's the thing that's killing us all? Like, how would you characterize the, its costs? I would say that everyone... I would, I would say that it does influence everyone. I think... Nick, you have said before in sermons that pride and insecurity are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Kim, Tim Keller said that. I don't know. Who said it. So a lot like, of things I have said in sermons, <laughs> Tim Keller has said. So, but it's really true. It's, uh, it's very, uh, I think a lot of us deal with insecurity and don't realize that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I think it's very confusing because insecurity feel, when you feel insecure, you feel hurt. You feel like the victim. And so it feels like something else is wrong in the world that is happening to me. And so I think that there are a lot of personal costs that we mentioned. Uh, it does affect corporate, corporately, it affects other people in our lives. It's not just mm-hmm. this thing that's just, we're wrapped up in, it affects other people. Yeah, yeah you put into our, our podcast notes a couple of the lists I put, I, mm-hmm. I had in a talk I did mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. I did a, uh, a talk at a conference called um, Intimacy with God. And so I talked about insecurity at the Intimacy with God conference because I think that if you're trying to control or if approval is really important to you, but you're still playing games, Mm -hmm. because insecurity will make a pragmatist out of you, right? Because if you feel secure, you feel triggered, and you feel like you have to, you act out of pride, not of fear. Mm -hmm. I've got to do this to get the end Mm -hmm. I want. I've got to do this to be secure. And really opening yourself up vulnerably to God and to let God tell you what you are Mm -hmm. is just terrifying for insecure people. Mm-hmm. They're actually afraid yes. that all the things they're afraid of, God is going to confirm. Mm-hmm. And they're going to find themselves wholly inadequate and unredeemable. Mm-hmm. And it's like their biggest fear to really be honest mm-hmm. with God. And so um, in order for us to, to have intimacy with God or to really know God and be known by Him in the way we, we really need to be, in, we have to make war on insecurity because yeah. it's a much bigger deal than we want to admit. And I would say to uh, we Nick, you talk a lot about killing our sin and like having to be brutal in Mm. in that the spiritual discipline of ferocity yes Mm -hmm. and there is another podcast out about the spiritual discipline of that but i think that's true of insecurity and that's it's very it's almost like instead of a fluffy rabbit i think of it as kind of like an eel or something that's less it's it's less um it's very slippery and i think like as i mentioned before it's confusing because you feel like the victim in it uh, versus like, oh, I did this bad thing. 
Uh, it can be very confusing, but it is a sin that, that we need to kill. Uh-huh. And it takes a lot of Yeah, people really struggle hacking. with the idea that insecurity is a sin of pride yeah. and fear. Yes. And mm-hmm. because both fear and pride are the sin of inordinate self-focus. Mm-hmm. And so when you feel, I'm not good enough, well, that sentence starts with the word, I'm, mm-hmm. which may not really be relevant. Mm-hmm. Who cares if you're not good enough? Good enough for mm-hmm. what? Good enough mm-hmm. for who? Good enough right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to your purpose. What mm-hmm. has God made you for? What right. are you here to do? And um, it's one of the reasons why within modern life, there can be a morbid amount of introspection that just mm-hmm. isn't helpful. Yeah. There's a kind of self-reflection where we say, God, see me and know me and tell me if there's any wicked way in me, right? Mm-hmm. That's Psalm 139-ish, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's also this kind of like self-flagellation or, or inordinate self-focus that's really mm-hmm. unhelpful. So let me go through this list real fast. Yeah. And we could stop on something. So personal cost of insecurity. Anxiety, depression, drama, because you're defensive or, or normally misunderstanding other people in relationships because you're not really listening for what they're sharing, you're listening about how it affects you, right? Less success um, that you can leverage for the glory of God because you're so timid that you're not mm-hmm. you're not fulfilling your potential, right? Mm-hmm. Um, overwork because your identity is riding on your work success. Codependent relationships, putting all of your emphasis on just a few people or just one person that you can, quote, really trust because you don't know if you can trust people. But maybe if I just have two relationships or three relationships mm-hmm. and I pour all of myself into them and I give them everything, I do everything for them, maybe it'll work, mm-hmm. right? Oppressive or permissive parenting or both mm-hmm. because we're so insecure about how our kids are going to turn out or if they're going to like us or what they're going to do. Or So if we're insecure about how they're going to turn out, we may be um, too oppressive in our parenting. If we're afraid that they're not going to like us, we might be too permissive in our parenting. Eating disorders, like you said, addictions can often be, um, oftentimes it's in the insecurity of um, of adolescence that people mm-hmm. find the things they become addicted mm-hmm. to because they can't have relationships mm-hmm. that work because they're just too insecure about them. Mm-hmm. Lack of weight, comp- weight control and attending health problems because a lot of insecurity will lead to anxiety and stress and depression, which often will cause people to eat and do other really unhealthy things and to stop exercising, right? Um, almost all social problems, <laughs> including not being social, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, debt, because we buy things mm-hmm. we don't need, because they make us feel like we're in control or they'll get us approval or we can somehow get power from them. Um, getting let, less out of sex, because um, sexual fulfillment, contrary to the popular athletification of sexuality, has a lot to do with connectedness and mm-hmm. feeling like you're loved and can receive love and that's stable and all of those things. Ineffective evangelism. I mean, nobody wants to be like an insecure person. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when we share the gospel with people, they're asking themselves, do they want to be more like us? Mm-hmm. At least in this way. And when our hearts and our lives are full of insecurity, they don't want to be more like us. Mm-hmm. They're like, you're really insecure. I don't want to be. Because pe- our insecurity is way more obvious to them than their insecurity is to them. Mm-hmm. We can always see insecurity to other people easier. Yeah. And it tends to be repulsive right? Mm-hmm. Underperforming because you just don't go for stuff and then shallow relationships. And relationships are actually the great equalizer of pleasure in human life, right? No, it doesn't matter how poor you are. You can have relationships mm-hmm. that are really fun and fulfilling with other people and it's the greatest joy of life whether you make $1 a year or $50 million, mm-hmm. right? It's the way in which all human beings are equal. And yet insecurity actually undermines that. Mm-hmm. You think all those are fair? That's yeah. just a sampling. I'm sure there's more. Yeah. 
And then we include the list of co the corporate costs of insecurity, right? Um, being competitive when we should be cooperating, mm -hmm. right? So inside the church, this would be like alienating younger talent because we don't mm -hmm. we don't want to do it. St Andy Stan Stanley says, when you're the mature generations and you get insecure, you look at the younger generations, then they annoy you, and you end up fighting what you should be funding. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's really important. You can see this um, in a number of places in the Bible. For example, um, the place where Joab murders Abner. Mm -hmm. So Joab has been Israel's general. Abner is actually a better general, but he was fighting under Saul. And when Abner came over to David, Joab isn't going to be the general anymore. And so instead of taking a lower position because they just got another superstar, he kills the superstar. Mm -hmm. And you see that in a number of places, right? So the reason Saul tried to kill David in the first place is insecurity. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan not being insecure, he's the prince. He's supposed to be the next yeah. king. David gets anointed by Samuel and says that he's going to be the next king. I mean, that is an insecurity, insecure situation if you've ever seen one. Yeah. And yet Jonathan isn't insecure. Mm -hmm. He loves David. He thinks David would be a better king than him anyway. Mm -hmm. And he decides to love and support David. Yeah, he sees what God is doing behind it instead of it as a personal Personal attack against attack. his yeah. rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, okay, so two is the misuse or fabrication of spiritual gifts or spiritual knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. um, Christ dishonoring sin. Um, insecurity can lead the wrong people into full-time ministry. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you know about this, Jill, but uh, like something like 40% to half of people who are in ministry should not be in ministry. Um, and it's because they get into ministry for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that Christian ministry will be really affirming mm -hmm. and everybody will love them because churches are full of nice people. And churches kind of are full of nice people, but ha people have complained about your performance oh, a few yeah. times. <laughs> and, and churches are full of people. They're right. full of nice people, but... They're just people. Yeah, so, and so if you've ever met yeah. a pastor that's a people pleaser, yeah, um, or just a constant fighter when they don't need to fight, um, you get you get this yeah. people who like and they and it really it really messes with the church. It doesn't help the church. Um, both judgmental or acquiescing attitudes towards the world. That is like mm -hmm. um, the everything's wrong with the culture. You can't see anything right with it, or nothing's wrong with it. It's totally fine. Like I I just want you to like me. Mm -hmm. Not being able to say, okay, what's the truth? This is what I believe. This is who I am. I don't care if you like me or don't like yeah. me. There's some stuff I agree with. There's some stuff I don't agree with. And that's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. um, because there's a lot of social pressure to conform, either towards the protective enculturation of the church mm -hmm. or what Richard Lovelace calls the destructive enculturation of worldliness. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, denial and avoidance in working out problems between churches. Mm-hmm. A disproportionate and unnecessary emphasis on distinctive. So, like, we are a Baptist church, and, like, everybody else should be a lot more like us. And yeah. if they were, that would be great for them, and they're not. So everybody should go to church here. Um, we still should do what we think is right, mm -hmm. but sometimes there can be a, real, a strong focus on those things that's mm -hmm. unhelpful. And it really comes out of insecurity because yeah. we want to believe that our, our distinctiveness choice is right. Yeah. Um, and then, then nine is the church doesn't act like the church and there's no powerful witness for Christ in the city. When the church is full of insecure people acting insecurely, yeah. the glory of God is not seen. Mm -hmm. The insecurity of the church is seen. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the yeah. things that you and I both feel like and we want to communicate is um, the average Christian, one, does not realize the depth of their insecurity, mm -hmm. does not realize the cost mm -hmm. of their insecurity. It's kind of like credit card debt where you're like, I'm going to buy this thing and you don't realize it's going to take you 64 months to pay it off yeah. and you're going to pay all this interest. And it's, it's, it's a yeah. disproportionate debt that insecurity creates. You're paying so much more than you think you are. 
mm-hmm. for the insecurity that is undealt with. And so part of the gospel is dealing with fear and pride mm-hmm. and its rootedness in our character, especially perhaps as it is embodied by our insecurities. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So, um, Jill, why don't you tell everybody what they should do about it? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, there's definitely, I don't know, there's a couple of different things. I know, Nick, you've talked a lot about kind of wrong ways that our culture thinks uh, we can deal with insecurity, uh-huh. uh, like uh, self-esteem. Right. There's some psychological, I mean, there's the whole field of psychology. Uh, so, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about what you found with self-esteem and what the culture says yeah. as a response to that. Yeah, I think there's two things to recognize up front. The first is is that the self-esteem movement um, is is rel- is mostly over within academic research circles in psychology. Mm-hmm. So the church has always known, or should have always known, that the whole, hey, if we give kids good self-esteem by kind of like blossoming them up, mm-hmm. they will achieve well. And what the research actually has always shown, we were just unwilling to see it, because it was like a free million bucks. I mean, if human beings could achieve greatly by people just walking around and being like, you're fantastic. Sounds pretty easy. That would be so great, right? (laughs) Uh, But it it turns out that um, the research that, for example, it would look at like a sophomore and their level of self-esteem and a junior and their level of self-esteem and they'd look at their performance level and they, they found that Students with high self-esteem also performed better. But when they began to try to differentiate the tracking, what they found was is that the junior's level of self-esteem tracked more closely with their level of performance their sophomore year hmm. than with their level of performance their junior year. Hmm. That is, they had carried over their self-esteem from their sophomore year on the basis of their actual achievement. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out people in general and kids in particular aren't as stupid as we think they are. <laughs> Right, they know that people can tell <laughs> yeah. us that they're fantastic, mm-hmm. and they know they're not. Like my own daughter said one time, because my wife is very encouraging, right? And I tend to be the this is how you can be better, right? And I've had my daughters have said, "Mom, we're so glad for your support, but Dad's the one who tells us the truth," mm-hmm. right? That's I mean, I just made a facial expression like the listeners would realize, <laughs> but like that's that's like how this works, right? K- yeah. Kids realize. Oh, all these teachers and all these parents mm-hmm. who tell us that we're fantastic and we're special little snowflakes and there's never been a piece, a drop of dew just like you. Like, And you can win no matter what. And you yeah. can be whatever you want to be. Yeah. It's all Your lies. are going to come true. Yeah. Right. And so what parents are teaching kids is that telling lies is fine if it makes others feel better. And they realize their parents are lying to them. Mm-hmm. And if later on, as you grow in adolescence, you want to know the real truth about something, guess who you are not going to go to for it? Those, all the self-esteem people who have been lying to you all this time, mm-hmm. which means you're going to turn to your peers who are ridiculously and profoundly ignorant of about all things truthful in relationship to what real life is like. It's a terrible dynamic. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. It's psychologically false. It creates unintended dynamics that really hurt your ability to care for other people, including your children and family. It also isolates them from you because they know you're a liar. But in addition to that, it's wrong biblically. Mm -hmm. Like God explicitly tells us who we are and he tells us how we should be situating our esteem for ourselves. Mm -hmm. The second thing that's really important to remember about insecurity and its effects and how we treat it is insecurity will make you a pragmatist. A pragmatist is somebody who does what they think is going to work without reference to morality, without mm-hmm. reference to truth, without reference to the coherence of their views, working mm-hmm. together with each other. It's just like, what's what's going to get me what I want? I'm going to do that thing. 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the Bible calls that the wages of wickedness. <laughs> the thing you want yeah. that you'll do anything to get is is the wage or the payment for wickedness because you're willing to do whatever yeah. you need to to get it. Mm-hmm. Pragmatism is absolutely out of bounds for a Christian for a lot of reasons we can't go into here mm-hmm. because we're terrible at it, because the world doesn't work that way, because mm-hmm. we won't know who we are, all these reasons. But once you realize that you have to let go of being a pragmatist. You can't manage your life. Therefore, you can't be in control of everything. You There's two steps that I usually say. One, you have to find out what your idol is mm-hmm. that you are worshiping because you're insecure. Mm-hmm. And what is the insecurity that it's feeding yeah. and, and pacifying? And then two, what does the gospel say about yes. that? Yeah. And what do you need to believe? Which is one of the things you excel at, Jill, is you're constantly saying, okay, I'm having this anxiety. I'm having this thing that's the fruit of insecurity. What is under that? And then what does the gospel say to the thing that's under it? Mm-hmm. My real hurt or my real mm-hmm. question or my real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, the gospel is really the answer <laughs> to and the antidote to insecurity. Uh, and it's interesting what you were saying, Nick, because uh, through all this self-esteem research and also other psychological, like I was a psychology major at UW-Madison and I learned a lot of, I learned a lot from that. Mm-hmm. But one thing um, I did learn was I mean, that was during the time that I was the most anxious and depressed because of a lot of insecurity and worked through hurt. And I uh, learned a lot about symptoms of, like, anxiety or mm-hmm. things that can come out of insecurity and these things uh, that are deep within us. But I never... And the field of psychology is often really good at that kind yeah, of taxonomy. Yeah, it was great. It was like, helpful. Like, you see these things, yeah. people are struggling with this, but then sometimes the cures aren't worse than the disease, but they're they're really not dealing with... The root. It's yeah. It's really. It's really. Uh, for me, I, like it was helpful because I didn't even know I was depressed until I was in the psychology class, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> I experienced all of those things." So it was helpful to identify the symptom. You're supposed to be able to get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not supposed to cry every day. What? Yeah. Uh, but uh, and so that was helpful to the extent that I was able to identify that something was wrong. Uh, but, and I, I did take some medication for a while and that helped take care of the symptom, but it didn't heal all of the deep things and apply truth to all of the things that needed to be repaired in my own heart and mind. Yeah. I've heard a number of psychologists tell me, um, cause I, you know, as a pastor and I think as somebody who has a, um, what we call a mental issue with ADD, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and chronic sleepiness, Mm -hmm. right. Um, I resist being medicated. And it's generally because I think America is way too medicated. Yeah. I mean, I think we're like, well, 5% of the population, we take something like 80% of yeah. the medications mm-hmm. in the world, right? And a lot of them are psychotropic drugs, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I've had a number of psychologists say, taking some kind of medicine for a short period of time mm-hmm. to give yourself some space to figure out what the heck is going on yeah. so can you be very think helpful. think rationally for like a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what ended up working, helping for me was I was on uh, a medication for maybe a year mm-hmm. and it just helped me get out of like, like my thoughts were just so insane and wacko. Like I couldn't think straight and focus at all. Like it was like a, like you know when a TV is like not on the right channel and it's just like fuzz. That's what my mind felt like. So it kind of got rid of the, cut the fuzz a little bit Mm -hmm. and allowed me to deal with some of these deep issues. But yeah, it was not what ultimately helped heal me at all. Mm. So, but, and that really is the gospel. 
Mm-hmm. So talk about that. How did you get from, so you took some medication. It mm-hmm. did help create some space. Mm-hmm. Um, science belongs to Jesus. And so yeah. what's scientifically possible belongs to Jesus. And so all of the scientific fields, including medication, psychiatry, and ph- psychopharmacology, mm-hmm. are fields that can or could belong to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, do or do not. And that's something we have to sort out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But there's nothing anti-Jesus about psychology or psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. It's just part of general revelation and what we can know in the work of science that God has given us to mm-hmm. do. However, God has also revealed certain things about our identity and who we are and what we're for and all mm-hmm. of that. And those are those theological truths are God-given seeds of our psychological healing in mm-hmm. many cases, um, especially when we've been broken through relationships and so on. Yeah. Um, so how did you? How did that work? for you yeah uh, it was really a process over time I think I explained how I was really controlling and um, closed off in relationships and that was true of my relationship with God as well I became a Christian in when I was 16 in high school uh, and that was it was right after uh, well actually well I still had an eating disorder but that kind of led to that Uh, and so I mean there was a level of openness with God because I acknowledged my sin, I acknowledged the eating disorder as sin, and but it was really a slow work of God thawing my heart over mm-hmm. uh, many, many years. I mean, 10 years, uh, I would say. So some of those milestones, I would say, uh, well, I f- when I first became saved, I remember God really convicting me of the control thing, specifically mm-hmm. in in reference to the eating disorder and some of my familial relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like you said, Nick, uh, about your talk that you gave, I mean, you, in in order to be intimate with God, you have to, you have to open, you have to be intimate with God. You have to open yourself and your heart up to him. And so, and God is probably going to indict you. Yeah. So like, you're going to have to change. (laughs) Right. This is very difficult for a lot of people in the present culture, because the fear there is, is that, What's necessary therapeutically is for the victim to, like, deal with the fact that they've been a victim. Right. Whereas you're, what you're kind of saying is, um, for all that had happened to you, the part, the beginning mm-hmm. of your healing was God being like, you're a controlling person, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were like, oh. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not just a victim. That is yeah. not focusing on your your right. your identity as victim, but your identity as perpetrator. Right. Yes. And that you had to deal with that first. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that is huge because... So what would you say people are terrified about that? They, they're insecure. They know yeah. they're insecure. They'd love to get better. The, but the idea of opening themselves up to a God that would indict them mm-hmm. in all their hurt, mm-hmm. that just sounds terrifying. It sounds scary. Yeah, it sounds like more hurt. Right. And I think... And it's a trigger. It's Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it makes you want to control more, which makes you shut yourself off from God. Right. So I think... And I have, I have seen like phases in my life where I would open myself up and God would do stuff and I would change. And then there would be seasons where I'm like, I don't want to change. That's really scary. That's like a big ask. And I would be really far from God for a season. And it is scary. And I think that's one of the things keeping us from dealing with and killing our insecurity is not mm-hmm. recognizing ourselves as the perpetrator. We all sin. Like we, and our insecurity is a rejection of the truth <laughs> that we yeah. are made in the image of God and that. Uh, he loves us and that we uh, are are meant to be in relationship with other people and that mm-hmm. uh, what he's done is good in our lives. And so I think 
the victim mentality is really crippling. Uh, it, because in a sense, it's easier to feel that it's easier to be the victim because mm-hmm. you don't have responsibility <laughs> for mm-hmm. for the situation. It's like it's kind of like saying that the, I mean the perpetrator is the one who has to make amends or fix mm-hmm. the situation. And so if you're always the victim, you're always kind of off scotch free, mm-hmm. and the world is against you. And it feels terrible, but it's easier than it feels easier than change, and it feels less scary than change and acknowledging how you've sinned and yeah so you've already kind of covered two of the primary elements of the gospel right so you you said what will happen when you are we open ourselves to mm-hmm. our insecurities we're going to face an indictment mm-hmm. which in, which assumes guilt mm-hmm. and that we're not a good person so mm-hmm. all this time we're trying to control and our insecurities are being like we need affirmation we need control mm-hmm. we're good enough i'm a good person this is going to be fine and there's this point where god's like nope you are not a good person. Mm-hmm. All this guilt belongs to you. And then the gospel enters and we we are justified or made yeah. good enough in the death and resurrection, in Christ and only in Christ. Mm-hmm. And Lovelace makes a good, great point about this where he where he says all of these dynamics of the gospel are in Christ because you believe, trust in mm-hmm. Christ, are connected to him, are indwelled by his spirit, mm-hmm. have received his forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That it's only in... Um, uh, one of the systematic theologians I like, um, Miller Erickson, wrote a, a big systematic theology. And, and one of the things he says is, um, our union with Christ is actually the most fundamental doctrine of the entire mm-hmm. gospel. A lot of people think it's justification, that like in Christ we're made just. But he's like, mm-hmm. how is that possible? Right? To something come from Christ to you. He's like, the reason you can be kind of just is because you and Christ are one. Jesus must and must only be counted just. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus comes into union with you, you and he share the same moral space. And so your sins can't be counted against you. It's actually our union with Christ that makes all these other things possible. Nor, and so the second thing you covered was our slavery to sin. Mm-hmm. Like we are compulsive, enslaved sinners. And yet in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. What the Bible would refer to as sanctification. Yeah. Right? You are free. Yes, you have all these compulsions. But you are in union with Christ, and Christ is free, and in him you are free. Mm-hmm. You're empowered by the Spirit. You're given a new identity. You know what freedom looks like in the knowledge of Christ, right? You have the capacity for freedom. You are unchained. And so you can't play the victim anymore, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you're the victor in Christ. Yeah, in Christ, you're <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And so you can no longer say, oh, poor me, or mm-hmm. oh, I can't do anything, or people don't really change. Mm-hmm. Because Christ is the victor and you are in him. And so mm-hmm. so it, you are counted just. That is, in Christ you are accepted, mm-hmm. right? But you're not a good person on your own, mm-hmm. right? So it pops the balloon of want to be a good person. But it tells you in Christ you are accepted, right? You are a slave to sin and compulsion and you love it. Mm-hmm. And only in Christ are you free, mm-hmm. right? And then the third is presence, right? That, you're, that Christ is with you. Mm-hmm. because there's a sense of I'm alone in the world. Mm-hmm. And because I'm alone in the world, it justifies me acting desperately. Mm-hmm. And acting for myself. And acting for yourself. Right. Yeah. And I think that's really key because we were talking about why it can be hard in insecurity to allow God to work in you. And when you're in the midst of insecurity, you are believing the opposite of those things. You're believing that it's uh, that you are in it, we're seeing God as how we've seen other people hurt us. And so we're f- afraid of more hurt. So I know for me it was 
God isn't really going to be with me. Like some of the key things that you mm. had said, or that uh, I'm not good enough, even though Christ has declared that there, I have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so it's it's when you're looking in on, I need to repent and come to Christ, it seems like it's not going to work, <laughs> actually. But mm. what I can say is that uh, it do, it's, it's not... It's only scary up to the point that you actually come to Christ and repent uh, in your insecurity. And at that point, he's a very gentle healer, and he will indict you, but it's it's never the same kind of indictment that insecurity brings of, I am this awful person and this burden is too much for me. And I it's not the same sort of like <laughs> condemning indictment it's mm-hmm. it's condemning in the sense that you have to acknowledge that you've done something wrong before a holy god but it's also you are one with christ and right. it's taken care of already and yeah yeah, yeah. i mean what, one of the things we talk about at high point a lot is that sin is always bluffing yeah and so when you submit to the lord um the indictment that you fear mm-hmm. you get mm-hmm. but without the result you expect yes yeah so he's he's like you're a terrible person <laughs> and you're like and you're expecting yeah. like this Shriveling, disintegration, like, yeah. right? And yet he said, and then he's like, as soon as you can accept that, you can accept that I'm going to give you everything that you need yeah, freely. But yeah. you can't receive it until you realize you're totally empty. Mm-hmm. And then God says, in Christ, you're counted good enough. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're counted as good as Christ. Mm-hmm. And you, but you can't accept imputation until you accept until you lose moralism mm-hmm. and until you recognize your loss and your emptiness. Mm-hmm. And I think people fear, so people stick with their anxiety mm-hmm. because they think if they come to Jesus, they're going to get, they're going to get condemnation. Yeah. And, but what they get is peace. Yeah. And people. <laughs> and freedom. I know. From the condemnation. I yeah. <laughs> when I tell people yeah. from the pulpit, I can see the looks on their faces. When I say, listen, the minute you admit you're a terrible human being, you are just a terrible excuse for a human mm-hmm. being. The peace that will flood your soul, you have you have no idea the mm-hmm. peace that will flood your soul. When you realize that you're you're only good enough in Jesus, He freely gives you everything you want. You're not a good person, mm-hmm. and you let all that go. It's amazing how anxiety begins to begins mm-hmm. just fall away, and peace enters in. Mm-hmm. You don't you can't boast, mm-hmm. but you're not all bound up anymore. And the ironic thing about that is we're so afraid of saying I'm a terrible human being to God, but insecurity is being wrapped up in how you're a terrible human being. Right. But it's not coming to God about it. You'll admit it to yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's... Enough to make you crazy. (laughs) Right. But you won't admit it to the only person you can trust with the truth. And the only one who can free you And the one who already knows. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's... We're not telling him anything new. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the, the fourth thing Loveless talks about is authority. That in Christ we have authority. That Christ speaks the truth in his situations mm-hmm. and that he has authority to do so. Yeah. And that's a super important one in relationship to insecurity because he has given us trustworthy truths, what Second mm-hmm. Peter 2 calls his very great and precious promises, that we have the authority to speak into things, mm-hmm. including our own insecurities. Yes. And for my conversations with you, this has been a really important thing for you. Yes. Speaking God's truths with his authority that you have in Christ mm-hmm. at yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's, and it can it, so sometimes when I talk with people about overcoming insecurity or anxiety and saying like, well, you just have to believe the gospel, it sounds like, okay, but how does that really play out? And 
I've had to, I've found that it really helps to have specific ways that I'm applying truth. Um, so kind of what you were talking about, Nick, uh, part of what's helped me is first identifying this, like a lie behind what I'm believing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're just, I don't know, sometimes I'm just anxious and that's all. I don't know why. And I don't have to like revel in it and try to like figure out exactly what's going on because sometimes you're just anxious. So two questions, what is the lie? What is the idol? Yes. What's the the false God I'm looking to to help me instead of the real God? Or yeah, what's the lie rather than the truth God tells? Yes. Right. And And sometimes you can really get a great answer. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just first of all, coming to God about that, like what am I believing? Uh, I was a navigator in college, which is a Christian organization on campuses, kind of like Crew, if you've heard of that. And they have a a packet or a curriculum type thing called Core Lies. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that started me on this journey. Uh, And what it leads you through is you uh, kind of start at the symptom of what, like situations that might make you feel anxious or terrible or whatever, and then working back from there, like what, like asking yourself questions, like why did that make me so angry, or why did that make me sob for three hours, even though it was one passing comment, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't matter, and I know that, <laughs> and really identifying like a situation, or something that was spoken to you, or something that you just believed out of a situation, that is a lie. So that's one way um, that helped me. I mean, I spoke about these situations in my life. Yeah, so you, I, I, you identify what you're going to speak authoritatively to. Right, yes. Having an object to use to speak to with mm-hmm. that authority is important. And then yeah. the content of the speaking becomes like the next part, right? Yes. So, yeah, again, yeah, identifying the lie. Again, that's not always necessary because sometimes it's just you're anxious. But the big part is speaking truth to that then. So for me, um, I one thing would be, like I... I'm trying to think of an example. One thing coming out of college that I was really wrapped up and insecure about was initiating with other people and feeling like I was kind of on the outside of relationships and I wanted to have close friends but felt like they had to initiate with me first or something because I was afraid that if I did, nothing would happen. I don't really know. Basically, I had a lot of social anxiety around um, talking with people I didn't know and initiating friendships. And so... Uh, because of some of the lies I was believing uh, that I wasn't that they weren't actually going to love me or that um, they might say pretend they like me and then not really but you can never know those things and Mm -hmm. God really convicted me of how I was not loving other people in that actually because Mm -hmm. I was holding back from loving them out of fear in psychology we call this transference right (laughs) you had become the kind of person who couldn't love right and so then you doubted everybody else's love yeah so some of that was... In not the, unco- it's not uncommon. Yeah. yeah. So some of that, in that situation, what what I was... The lie I was believing was that um, I was unlovable or that I wasn't worth that person's time or I was already making up excuses for why... For them, on why they wouldn't want to be my friend and I didn't even... Hadn't talked to them yet. So some of that applying truth was just believing verses, just going to God's word and saying... No, I'm made, the, the Bible says objectively as truth that I am made in the image of God. And I am, uh, Psalm 139 speaks a lot to this and really helped me specifically. It says that we have been knit together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it says that God's works are wonderful and we know it full well. <laughs> so that mm-hmm. means we need to know it full well right. as an objective truth. And, uh, and so when I 
wasn't, when I was acting out of the opposite of that, I was rejecting God's truth about that. So, um, and then I also knew from the Bible that I was supposed to reach out of myself to love other people self-sacrificially. And if that meant I was afraid, that meant that I had to sacrifice all of my fears to love someone else. And so, uh, so knowing those things and then that didn't make my fear go away, but what it looked like practically was even if I was shaking in my boots, I needed to go up and say hi to someone and even just introduce myself and show up at things that I wanted to go to and not, mm-hmm. not already think of how people were going to respond, but to act out of what God had already said and then to act out of love and to just show up and trust that it was true, even if it didn't feel true in that moment. Um, and so it's really kind of forcing yourself and to do... Um, the scary thing, but first remembering truth along with it and acting off of, okay, I know this is what God says about this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to do that instead of what I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've told people before, and you're, you're talking about this a little bit. Sometimes you just have to obey the Bible. Yeah. And you don't know what it's going to produce in terms of psychological mm-hmm. whatevers, but it'll force you into situations that have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And yet when you follow Jesus, Virtually all of the unintended consequences turn out to be good. Mm-hmm. And when you f- submit to the pragmatism mm-hmm. of insecurity, you get a, you get just as many unintended consequences. They're just usually bad ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that I think you learn over years of following Christ mm-hmm. is that Jesus says do it this way, and it looks like it's going to produce terrible outcomes, mm-hmm. and your insecurities are like, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. This is not how we're going to manage our life. And you go, no, we're going to trust Jesus. And yes, it looks like death, but we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And then all these things work you did not intend to work. All mm-hmm. these angles you weren't playing, he was playing. And then mm-hmm. you, later you realize, actually, that's how that's how the world works. Yeah, The whole world is like kind of created to work that way, that when yeah. you do this, these other things happen, and that five steps down the line, you get the result you wanted. When you were only thinking two stages down the line, mm-hmm. when you were managing yourself. And yet when you say, no, I'm going to do it my own way, you try to manage your own life to get what you want mm-hmm. out of your insecurities. And what happens is you get all these consequences you didn't intend, and they're almost all bad. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think maybe lastly, Jill, is uh, the relationship of humility mm-hmm. to insecurity. That one of the most important ways to face and seek to kill the sins wrapped up in our insecurities mm-hmm. is to seek humility because mm-hmm. ultimately insecurity is in, it is pride in that it is in fear, which is bound up in an inordinate focus on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when we realize when Christ um, counted it joy to be killed for us, um, to lay himself down so that we mm-hmm. could be blessed and loved and cared for, that it actually is in the moment of self-sacrificial love when we enter into humility that actually we get to a place where Insecurity has less control. We may have all the same insecurities, yeah. but it gets blunted and dulled in a way it won't the more we focus on ourselves, mm-hmm. which I think is the opposite of what normally happens in modern culture. Yeah. We have these insecurities, and the first thing we do is we go focus more on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we do it by going to counseling, and counselors mm-hmm. can help us get out of some of those things. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it also just keeps us focused on ourselves, yeah. which can be very unhelpful. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you, you have experiences of that? I have a section from Screwtape Letters I think I, I want to read. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. that's it. Uh, I I would say that's very true. I think, and it's hard, pursuing humility is hard to kind of pin down because sometimes it's really confusing with insecurity. I think insecurity can come off as as 
humility wrongly because it's very self-deprecating, but recognizing um, humility as really seeing yourself as God sees you and how you're rightly placed before God. Uh And so that means that we are greater than we could imagine because we are in Christ and we are victors and not victims of everything that's happened to us. And we, uh, we have the, we have spiritual authority. We have justification. We have everything in Christ, but also that we need Christ and we are not, uh, more, we, yes, we need him (laughs) and we are spiritually, uh, uh, bankrupt without him and so just seeing yourself as that but not wallowing in one or the other and so mm-hmm. I think that really speaks back to f- reading the Bible knowing what is truth and speaking that into the situations whether that means you uh, are finding yourself really jealous of someone and you need to speak truth into uh, yourself in the ways of humility of I am not better than this person uh, God I don't is, deserve what yeah, they have. I, That's called coveting. Yeah, yeah. and like God is, do, like with Jonathan and David, God has a greater plan for what he wants, and I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so they can have that thing because God's putting them there. Or it might mean, uh, you know, if you feel terrible about yourself, acknowledging I'm made in the image of God. And those are both humility. It's seeing yourself where God has placed you before him. Mm-hmm. And it is key to acknowledging truth and getting killing the sin of insecurity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also what people forget, and, and humility requires this, because the minute you become more self-forgetful, you have to look to providence more. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're being pragmatic and we're trying to manage our own lives, we see so much wasted time and opportunity. We see all these things that have happened to us, that have hurt mm-hmm. us, and we're like, oh, all this is lost potential. Mm-hmm. And um, we look at how God rules the world, and we want what we want to manage. Mm-hmm. We see all the lost potential. We think God is so wasteful. <laughs> and yet the minute we turn to God and trust him, and say, mm-hmm. God, where are you taking me? What do you want me to do today? Mm-hmm. How can I live for others? And so on. All of a sudden, that that Second Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 starts kicking in where like, he starts using everything you've ever been through mm-hmm. to do all kinds of things. Like mm-hmm. I went to this, this uh, seminar a couple weekends ago just to support a friend. And I felt like I should support a friend. At that thing, there was a woman there, an African-American woman who... Um, has fought, done foster care for years, focuses on only African-American boys. That's all she does. So I spent 30 minutes just listening to her talk about that, mm-hmm. right? In some ways, didn't feel really relevant. In some ways, it felt like a waste of my Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon, right? So the pancake breakfast yesterday, I'm sitting there, and I sit down with a lady at our church, and we're talking about some stuff. Turns out, she just started fostering a younger African-American mm-hmm. boy, and she's having a really tough time with it. Mm-hmm. And it turned out, I knew just the person for her to call. Yeah. So I called this lady and I said, hey, would you have coffee with this lady from my church and like help her? Because she's been literally doing this for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like getting African-American boys from like 5 to 15 who mm-hmm. are having major parental issues and like helping straighten them out and help getting them ready for mm-hmm. adulthood and so on. And so today I just brokered this relational connection that came from probably three events in my life where I would have rather been doing something else if I was managing my future. Mm-hmm. And it's once yeah. you re- once you begin to look at that, and you say, "God, what are you doing?" I've seen this in pastoring High Point Church. I, the reason why I don't have a vision for High Point Church is because I believe part of my job is to read the present mm-hmm. providences of God. Look what we have in our yeah. hands. Look what's already happened to us, and look at how God might be marshaling that in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I have seen really cool successes mm-hmm. and blessing come from that. And the more I can get out of my self management, and the more I can read the providences and seek to act faithfully as a steward the more things tend to grow. But I, I believe you have to be with all ferocity pursuing humility in order yes. for that to work. Because you're not managing what you're not 
ordering things according to what you think is going to work well and controlling the situations. And I've seen that, uh, yeah, and I, I spoke about all these things that happened to me when I was younger, but I, looking back, I, I mean, there's times where I still just am driving and I'm crying in my car because I'm thinking of God's goodness through all of those things and seeing his providence and his direct healing. And uh, when I've opened myself up to him, seeing how he's directly healed and brought in other situations that have spoken directly to a hurtful, that have repaired hurtful situations. And I've seen healing in my family and I've seen, it's been incredible. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really about, and it makes me more humble because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't have done any of that or imagined any of that or ordered any of that to happen. But yeah. in your insecurity, you could have been mad about it. Yeah. And you could have, all of that could have been wasted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And humility unlocks all of our pain mm-hmm. for the, for good, which is in some ways offensive to our pride. Yeah. <laughs> but is is part of how God does mm-hmm. things in a world that's broken. Mm-hmm. All right, let me read. I want to read the end of um, letter 14 in the Screwtape Letters. So if you don't know the context of the book, the Screwtape Letters, it is letters between two demons, a management demon and a field demon. And in this one, um, Uncle Screwtape, who is the older demon, is explaining to this younger demon, Wormwood, um, what humility really is so mm-hmm. that they can undo it in the, quote, patient, which is the human that Wormwood is supposed to try to destroy. And so, which is a great book. It's actually for all the psychology, because I had to do, like, not quite a minor in psychology, but of all the psychology books I've read in my life, Screwtape Letters, I think, is the best. It's just mm-hmm. so chock full of that. So let me read this. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I trail off into a bad British accent because <laughs> I've listened to the fa- Focus on the Family version of this so many times. This will be but, fun. Anyway, yeah. cool. <laughs> so this is what he says. But there are other profitable ways of fixing his attention on the virtue of humility. By this virtue, as by all the others, our enemy, that's God, wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him or to God and to the man's neighbor. All the abjection and self-hatred are designed in the long run solely for this end. Unless they attain this end, they do us little harm. And they may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And, above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt for other selves, for, and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think, it is, let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Fix his mind, fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe that those talents are less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt, in fact, they are less valuable than he believes them to be, but that's not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for something other than its truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what would otherwise threaten to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe that they are ugly and clever men trying to believe that they are fools. And since what they are trying to believe may, in some cases, be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it. And we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. 
The enemy wants to bring the man into a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. The enemy wants him, in the end, to be so free of any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and as gratefully as in his neighbor's talents, or in a sunrise, or an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man, in the long run, to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible, but it is, it is his long-term policy, I fear, to restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity, and gratitude for all selves, including their own. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. For we must never forget that it is what is the most repellent and inexplicable trait of the enemy. He really loves the little hairless bipods he has created and always gives back to them with his right hand what he has taken away with his left. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet and then forget about it than that he should spend much time and pains trying to think of himself as a bad one. Your efforts to instill, is to instill either vainglory or false modesty into the patient, which will therefore be met from the enemy's side with the obvious reminder that it is not usually that a man is not usually called upon to have an opinion of his own talents at all, since he can very well go on improving them to the best of his ability and serving others with them without deciding on his own precise niche in the temple of fame. You must try to exclude this reminder from the patient's consciousness at all costs. The enemy will try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine which they all profess but find it difficult to bring them bring home to their feelings. The doctrine that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given to them, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. But always, and by all methods, the enemy's aim will be to get the patient's mind off such questions, and yours will be to fix it on them. I love that passage just partly because Lewis is great, but <laughs> but because it it says to people, um, self-forgetfulness is mm-hmm. what humility is about. Mm-hmm. And therefore, loving God and loving others gets us out of ourselves. And it, it, it deadens and it, it, it basically it drains the swamp of insecurity. Mm-hmm. Your insecurity can have all the same structures, and you'll have to deal with them through finding the idol, finding the lie, speaking to it with authority, with the truth of God. Mm-hmm. But humility itself has a capacity before all that happens. In seeking humility, it progressively just drains the swamp of insecurity because you're paying less attention to yourself mm-hmm. and more attention to your neighbor. And it turns mm-hmm. out that what your neighbor needs is a very inadequate person who will genuinely love them, mm-hmm. which is what all your friends need and what all of our churches need and what everybody needs. And so I think that ultimately when we find ourselves insecure if we recognize that at root as having a large component of pride Mm -hmm. and we focus on humility and then look to speak truthfully towards the lie that we're believing it produces a process where we simultaneously drain the swamp but at the same time we attack the problem at its source Mm -hmm. 
And in doing so, I think we can make a lot of progress. But like mm-hmm. I think you said, Jill, this is this is a long termer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It's a life journey. I still I still things will creep up and I'll feel anxious and out. I'll have to say again, okay, this is uh, this is the same insecurity that I've had for as long as I can remember, and coming back again. But it's always attacking it again and again and not letting it have any foothold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, Jill, I know some of this stuff is sometimes not fun to talk about. I want to thank, mm-hmm. you, want to thank mm-hmm. you on behalf of everybody who's listening for sharing. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully people will be looking forward to when you come back and do your testimony and we can hear kind of more of the story mm-hmm. and some of the college year stuff that we didn't get to include today. So um, hope this blessed you guys, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.